This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Olsher. All right. To another edition here of Reinvention Radio. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. I'm Mary Goulet. Richie Ote. What's up, baby? Hey, how's it going? All right, all right, all right. And we are joined in studio by the one and only Joni Connell. Hi, Joni. Hi. How, how are, you? are you? I'm really, really good. Great having you here. All right. So uh, first and foremost, welcome to all those who are tuning in to Reinvention Radio for the first time. Really love you and appreciate you. And uh, for those who have been rating and reviewing uh, the show, thank you so much for doing that. And of course, subscribing and sharing it with others. We do appreciate it. And uh, I'm pretty happy, pretty fired up. It's a busy time in, uh, in Reinvention Radio land. And uh, man, there's all kinds of good things going on in the world. And uh, and just um, just got to take a moment here to uh, to applaud Michelle Wolf if I just can for just two seconds. Uh, oh wow! I just I'm sorry. I know we don't we haven't you been thought doing the, she was cool. We haven't been doing the sound off thing for a long time, and uh, and I just I just had to drop that in there because it just goes to show you that you may not find something it's funny or whatever, but at the same token, it's just like you know I just I applaud her for just expressing herself, and that's what we try to do here on Reinvention Radio is just we yeah, express that, ourselves, not to that degree. <laughs> So <laughs> that was off the rails. That, that was off the rails. And so maybe we'll do a special sound off just on the White House Correspondents' Dinner at some point. But, uh, all right, no, yes, Mary Goulet has her own opinions on that. Uh, Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure you do as well. I'm sure you do as well, Joni. And, uh, and so, uh, well, look, uh, Michelle, uh, well, she readily admits that she was a, uh, she's a recovering nerd. She's someone who used to be a nerd, and, uh, and now she's found her way into comedy and found her groove there. Uh, and another somebody who's a recovering nerd and or reinventing yourself uh, out of nerdland or into nerdland or just embracing the nerd that you are uh, is, is Joni Connell. So that's so cool. So you, we were like, what should we name the show? You're like, let's call it Reinventing Nerds, right? <laughs> and yeah. welcome to the land of Steve Segway. <laughs> yeah, right? We, we, we always go from a dick got correspondence dinner to a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I just, I, I couldn't I, I completely ignore that because we don't do the sound off anymore. I just, right. I, I just had to throw that out there. Uh, so, Joni, welcome. I'm really, really glad you are here. Uh, tell me uh, so for, mm, obviously, we got a lot of ground we want to cover. But tell us all first here, just kind of your background, because you're, you're Harvard educated. I mean, you did the Silicon Valley thing, like the whole nine. So on paper, like that resume is like, oh, my God. And you at some point decided, OK, I'm just scrapping this whole thing and completely reinvented your life. So just take us a, a little bit back. You, you actually went to Harvard. So you're you <laughs> yes. are a Harvard grad. Yes, I am. I don't actually think I know another Harvard grad. Now, that, now you talk about my circle. Do you know any Harvard grads? Like, do you know any? Yes. You do. Of course you do, Mary. <laughs> do you, Richie? I do, but I don't hang out. <laughs> yeah, right? It's not like we're homies. <laughs> I actually don't. I don't think I know another Harvard grad. That's so cool. So, so all right. So, the, so I'm assuming growing up, your parents were kind of like, look, you got to do mm, the best schooling, like the whole nine, right? And they were, they were pushing you in that direction. How, I mean, how, how did you end up at Harvard? Like, that's a pretty... That's a pretty amazing thing, really. And then to actually graduate from there, um, tell, tell us more. Okay, I will, but it's not what you think. And it's, it's not. not the typical story, okay. actually. I'm I, listening. I, I grew up in Cambridge, which oh. is where Harvard is. And so I was a townie, as they call me once I got there. And 
I tell you, I told my folks I wanted to go there. I mean, this was, I walked through Harvard Yard every day on the way to high school. Mm-hmm. It was a, it's a beautiful place. It's just somewhere I wanted to go. It was my yeah. goal. Just, it was my dream. And I told my parents I wanted to go. And all they could see were the dollar signs. Right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> They're I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, today it's what, like 80, 90,000 a year? I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, so, it was expensive then too. It was expensive but, then yeah. too, sure. And they were like, well, you know, they didn't really encourage it so much, <laughs> which is not what you would hear. You'd be like, what? Look, yeah. Joni, you're, you're smart enough. You're good. We love you, honey. You just go out in the world and do There's your There's a JC thing. down the road. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. And so it was up to me. I mean, the thing about Harvard is that they have financial aid and it's needs-based. It's not scholarship-based. Mm-hmm. So you apply and they give you what you need to get there. And that's the only way we could have done it. Okay. And I paid my share uh, as well as my parents. You worked your way through college? Yeah, I did. You did? Okay. I did. I worked, yeah, I I worked a lot in college. And electrical engineering. Yes. So it wasn't just like, it wasn't like this, like a a soft little major here. I mean, a Harvard electrical engineer to boot. How did, just, what was the attraction of electrical engineering just out of curiosity? Well, I would say the money. I was going <laughs> right. to say to pay off the student loans. It's, right. yeah, it's, yeah. Still, it's still good, by the way, if anything ever changes. Right? You got that yeah, degree. Yeah, it's not yeah. going anywhere. No, I was always good at math and science and, and computers. You know, So it was a natural way for me to go. Um, but my parents did make it crystal clear to me that that fourth year tuition check was the last money I was getting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I needed to have something I could do right out of college. Mm-hmm. Graduate school didn't seem to be an option. And So I'm not trying to yeah. throw like a date stamp on here or age or anything, mm-hmm. but we're talking like, is this is the yeah, 90s? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're trying to find out when. This is the early 90s? This is that mid-90s? It was the 80s. 80s, okay. The 80s, All right, yeah. so computers on every desk, were, that wasn't the case yet. Right. Right? So yeah. how did, so you, you had vision. I mean, you saw... The, what was your first computer? You you must have had like. Did you have like one of those Commodore like sixty four? Was that it? Was that it? Commodore sixty four, uh, right? Oh gosh! Did you no, have I one of those? You know, Radio Shack. Like the, you you were like you were like a frequent buyer at Radio Shack. Like you had a Radio Shack card, right? Like you were one of those. Well, I was somebody who uh, used the mainframes at school. Okay. With the terminals. So this them. is like fill up a whole room type computer yes, at that point. Yeah. Yes. In fact, that was my first job too, was working for a company that built mainframe computers, tandem computers. You probably never heard of them. They were a huge company back mm-hmm. in the day in Silicon Valley, kind of like uh, HP. And we mm-hmm. built mainframes that held the uh, stock exchange. Wow. So so you were a visionary though. I mean, when you come right down to mm-hmm. it, because in the, in the 80s like that, there weren't a lot of people who were saying... I'm going into computer land, right? I mean, like, there right. were a few, but it was, I mean, yeah, it I mean, wasn't Microsoft mainstream. didn't go public till 86. Right. My, wow, okay. So, yeah. yeah. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, like, woohoo, you're on AOL? Right. <laughs> so you it had a lot of... Comp- they still were yet to pass out the diskettes. CompuServe. Yeah. CompuServe, yeah. yeah. So, and, you, so you had a lot of vision around that. Right, That's, and there certainly okay. weren't many women in there either. Oh, right, yeah. even that. Yeah, so. yeah. and so you... Uh, and MIT is not terribly far, right, aren't they? Right, they're right down the street, and a lot of people ask me why I didn't go there. Yeah. And, I mean, I knew at the time I wasn't... Completely, 100% nerd. Mm-hmm. I wanted to interact with people, too. So uh-huh. I wanted to get more of a well-rounded <laughs> education. I mean, that doesn't sound right. But but that's that was my goal. I thought I could get it there at Harvard. Yeah. yeah. So electrical engineering, you get the degree. 
you know you've got to pay for everything from that point forward. You take that degree and you went to Silicon Valley. So you moved yep. cross country. Mm-hmm. You said, thanks, folks. Thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. <laughs> I'll see ya. And, uh, and I'm venturing to guess you probably lived at home. I mean, if you were right there, you probably lived at home and went to Harvard. So was, or did you actually live on the, I'm just curious if that was your first experience leaving the house. Uh, no, I lived on campus and then I actually moved okay. off campus the last year and a half. Uh, they really, Harvard has a certain way of doing things mm-hmm. and they discourage you from living, living off in. campus. Yeah. Okay. So, at least then, yeah. Uh, so Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. So this is again, towards the, the latter part of the eighties there, mm-hmm. the computer boom is starting to hit. Uh, you landed a job at one of the big companies. Mm-hmm. You went, what did you end up doing in, in Silicon Valley? I was a design engineer, electrical engineer. I worked in design. I designed data communications circuitry, and this is called like boards, you know, circuit boards mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, back then. And this was for tandem computers. And so were you like, you know, those mach- those things where like you have those, like you got to reach into like this mm-hmm. this clean container with those long glove like yeah. thing was that you yeah we well you know what i'm talking about right Richard? you know what i'm talking about right You're like going into like space or something no, right? those like are, rocks you know are contaminated or something. yeah right <laughs> that was my second job saying, like a clean room right? right and and when you're working and building circuits yeah in in the uh chips yeah so that was when i met second job at cypress semiconductor actually wow. but um i was more on the design phase not the actual manufacturing but in design engineer i mean i was in the lab certainly but we had circuit boards and a table and I had a soldering iron and wow. all that stuff uh, messing around debugging circuits and so what's your is there like a back claim when they to had fame? people doing stuff right back instead people. of robots there's an idea so so was there like a Joni claim to fame as far as like that world goes is there something we can look back on and go yeah Joni did that well <laughs> I worked on uh, data communications so it was actually helping partly uh, computers connect with modems wow i mean we don't really do that anymore yeah, right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah but still i yeah. mean it, it, it it's an evolutionary process you were yeah. you were in those embryonic stages mm-hmm. but at, at what point do you decide look the money's great but i i can't do this anymore like i i hate it i think you're your phrase was you preferred people over uh circuits. over parts and yeah. circuits and that sort yeah. of thing so how far into that career were you like, I, I, I need to do something else? Yeah, well, you know, it was, it was kind of an age-related thing. I think I was 28 years old, and I saw myself hitting 30 in a couple of years. Ooh, you 30. Know? I know. <laughs> Back then, <laughs> it seemed, that number. I know. <laughs> it was like monumental at the time, but I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and I'm going, you know, it's one of those decade years. And I said, do I want to hit 30 and keep? being bored and feeling unfulfilled you know i've got a great condominium and things like that in mm-hmm. silicon valley but i i just i wasn't passionate about my work and um i thought or i can run into age 30 doing what i love mm-hmm. and be a person that i that i really am excited about and so that's when i ultimately did made you, the change did you know what that was though i mean because and look you're obviously not alone I have studied this for years, obviously, around the what is your what type work, and 85% of those who graduate with a four-year degree do not work within their field of study, uh, you know, within five years of graduation. So 
not terribly long outside of that zone. I mean, you came to that conclusion yourself where it's like, yeah, I don't really love what I'm doing here. I want to try to find something else. So how did you figure out then what it was that you would be fired up about? Because I'm sure your friends and your family were looking at you going, Joni, you're a Harvard grad. You're working in Silicon Valley. You've got a good gig. What's this passion right? stuff? Right, what's this passion crap, you know? Yeah, be passionate about the paycheck. Now go back to work. Well, especially you know? back then. Today, if a kid came out of Harvard... I would not be surprised to see him skateboarding on 101, designing his own line of Of something. Yeah, right. And his parents like, cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So so how did you figure out what it was? And then what was sort of the backlash from your circle? Well, I did a lot of introspection, I guess you would say. Got some books. What is your what wasn't out then, Uh (laughs) unfortunately. Uh So I had to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But... Part of the process was checking in with family and friends to see what they thought I would be good at. And that was, I mean, talk about ego, right? I had to put that aside because, like you said, the Harvard degree, the engineering, Silicon Valley, having all super success there and then saying, yeah, I'm going to give all that up. Um, I want to make a change. I really felt I was going back with my tail between my legs. But I was actually surprised that people were like, well, yeah, do what you love. You know, I mean, really, that's not doing it for you. I mean, I wasn't putting anything on them Mm -hmm. like, oh, will you Mm -hmm. take care of me? Give me money. It was more like I'm taking care of myself and Mm -hmm. um, I want to do something else. And they surprised me. With support. So what what was the something else that you discovered? Well, a lot of people said it came down to you'd be good at counseling because I was really good with people and helping people out. And so I thought about that. And I said, well, let me try that out. Uh, maybe I'll be a counselor or a therapist. Mm-hmm. And so instead of... We're talking just, like suicide prevention lines. Right, yeah. Like, really? Like that's, the whole nine? Yeah, well, that's what Ooh, I man. did. I tried that out because I thought... Okay, that's a little I more to... exciting than the circuit board. <laughs> right, seriously. And I thought this is a way to help people. You know, I really wanted to do something that mattered. And so I went back and uh, I, I volunteered at a crisis hotline. Because I thought I have to try it to first because I've already made one mistake here in a career. I don't want to go jumping in and find and make another mistake. And I was on the crisis hotline. This guy called in and he said he was going to commit suicide. Oy. And I'm trying to talk him through it and he hangs up. Like talk him through the suicide? Like take yeah, the talk knife him through. and like <laughs> Daisy, deeper. No, you welcome don't sound like to you're our in world. <laughs> How She's much like, blood well, is there? <laughs> oh, my okay, God. back to circuit Can we FaceTime? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. No, no, Look to the left. Good. Go. No. So, You're horrible. Talk him out of it, I oh, must say. Oh, talk him say. out of it. Not... Talk him out of it. Got it. Yes. And, yeah, and he hung up, and I was just freaking out. I oh, couldn't hey. sleep that night. You know, I, I talked to somebody else, and they're all like, you know, it turned out that it was somebody who called in frequently, and it would do this, and you know, so mm-hmm. I, I was able to, you know. Carpen. Uh, compartmentalize it right but that, that wasn't you know did I you had quit the day job at that point no no this okay, was me this doing was, it at night and so good like, so you're doing yeah. this sort of on like concurrent paths yeah. trying to figure so you didn't quit the day job didn't cut off your nose to bite your face like still right. got the money coming in right. got the day job doing this in part-time hours yeah all right smart yeah and so i decided hey you know i don't think this is really the path for me because this this hard you yeah. know i'm not that person who can do that and yeah. you know i i talked to some other people and found out there are ways to help people and do counseling more with populations, people who are at work and leadership and development. And that resonates so much with 
the engineers that I had been working with all this time, and in fact, my own training of like, mm-hmm. well, we don't learn these people's skills. We learn how to debug circuits and design, and uh, boy, do people need it. I mean, I tell you, I worked for leaders in engineering who really didn't want to be dealing with people. We'd go to team meetings, and it was kind of like school's out when the meeting was over. The mm-hmm. door would burst open. Everyone would run because <laughs> they didn't want to be there. And yeah. I was like, this is something I can help with that is less painful and, mm-hmm. and uh, more impactful and positive. Mm-hmm. So so just so I'm clear, I mean, you talk about you know wanting to do something that mattered. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a struggle that a lot of people have is feeling like their work doesn't necessarily matter right but it's funny because if you now think about how we as a society are so dependent on computers and on technology and on you know the fact that uh, you're able to connect with almost anyone almost anywhere in the world and there are people who absolutely need you and your expertise, and you are the solution to their problem. There are people who are literally searching for you so that you can show up in their lives. The work that you were doing uh, enabled a lot of that to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting, right? I mean, you talk about doing something that mattered. The work that you were doing, actually, in hindsight, was really important work for creating something that not just mattered, but, I mean, has a massive impact on billions of lives, right? Yeah, I think it's easier to see that connection today right. than it was back then. Yeah. Yeah, mainframes in the basement and, the you know, are yeah. different than the iPhone and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So so you transitioned out of that work, uh, got into this world of, you know, working with leadership and, and helping. Because I know a lot of the work that you do now is around uh, communication, right? Right. And so you've been on sort of that, uh, as you call it, the nerd side of the equation and then you're naturally wired as a, as a communicator and as a connector and so on. So how how do you see those two worlds then meshing and what how does that reflect in your current work? Well, my current work, one of my niches, probably my primary niche is helping technical people build their people skills. Mm-hmm. And I work with engineers, I work with scientists, a lot of biotech locally. And other tradespeople, people who just didn't either get that training or, you know, don't value the people skills. Mm-hmm. And that's something I work with, too. I actually had somebody I was working with just a couple weeks ago tell me, she goes, you know, I never saw emotions, you know, relationships as being important at work. It was a distraction. Mm-hmm. It was inefficient. And now I've gotten the feedback and understand that building those relationships actually increases my inf- efficiency and helps the teams be more productive. And that's one of the things I help people understand, especially people who, who don't value that. You know, you walk in the room, and they're they like, no, let's get down to business. I'm going to persuade you with the facts and the data. And you're going, well, that doesn't always work. How can mm-hmm. we Well, it's a form yeah. of isolation, and isolation can lead to forms of depression and not feeling like a community. And if you are cut off in the workspace, that cannot be a good thing. And also, I wanted to ask you, did you get hired by the management to do the, offer this service, or were you trying to target individuals who I think would be a tough sell? I usually way? get hired by the companies to coach or train or help companies develop their performance management or talent management systems to encourage people to develop those skills 
by their performance management. So mm-hmm. it's usually the company that hires. But sometimes people want to you know, develop their skills so they can either move up or out and uh, would hire me individually. Yeah, and also you probably ran across a bunch of people from international countries that would come in and guiding them on social norms here. You know what I mean? Trying yep. to everything be more cohesive. Oh, yeah. I, did, I get that a lot, especially now. So many companies are global, and you, you get people talking about creative uh, ideas, and it's hard to do that virtually, like across the globe. So we talk about how do you um, get people face-to-face and understanding each other and what are the norms. And, you know, we think of Americans, and you look at the outside of America, we're thought of as cowboys, mm-hmm. right? You walk in there and talk about being bold. Mm-hmm. Steve, you go into somewhere like England or Japan and you're mm-hmm. bold, and they're going to be like, what? Yeah. And so, I mean, it's charming to one extent, but no, it's that's a huge part of it is the culture, uh, the norms, and uh, with the people, right? Yeah. What are you noticing in the difference between companies that are, let's just say, I'm air quoting, old school, like run by gray-haired mm-hmm. old white guys, mm-hmm. and then the new school millennium one run companies? Do you, The communication skills throughout those companies got to be completely different too. Well, yeah. Actually, I do a lot of work with cross-generational um collaborations and yeah the the old school is people want the face to face they really want to have meetings and the young people are just they eye roll meetings mm-hmm. <laughs> what am i yeah, doing they'll, there they'll, they'll have a meeting at the me? bar right yeah well maybe they have some <laughs> right. fun let's go uh, four square snapchat at the bar right. and then- yeah yeah no exactly so there's a big disconnect there uh, but some of the younger people are finding that they uh, want to be more efficient in these the, using their devices to communicate. Yet at the same time, when we're doing so much of that, we're finding that uh, they're they're lacking the trust and the relationships. Because I mean, a friend today is completely different than a friend or uh, you know someone mm-hmm. you collaborate or trust with previously. You know, you've got a number of likes on your post. That's not building a relationship so yeah. much. And so then we it's. The challenge there is to really build the rapport among people and, and have lasting relationships. And that's the challenge with the younger ones. You're asking, so what are the challenges there? And that's what they're learning from some of the, the gray hairs. And the gray hairs are learning some of the tech talk from, and the, you know, from the younger ones. I think there's a great opportunity for that cross-generational that you're talking about. Because mm-hmm. just the old school you know, face closing something i mean talk to steve in your coaching community i guarantee you the people who are getting the most sales are like they're at a conference or they're on a phone call or they're in front of them no one's no one's putting down 10 50 g on a credit card in a funnel that they never talk to anybody Mm -hmm. i mean there may be a couple here and there but so few and far between right and that's the message that is the challenge with some of the younger folks yeah and i work with them on that on that in fact you know, the, the virtual communication is something and that I do a lot of workshops on and leading virtual teams. And the first step is have your face-to-face meetings, kick it off with the face-to-face to build the trust. Mm-hmm. And then you can launch from there in, uh, across the, the globe and communicate on email, text, whatever it is. But if you're starting out that way, you're not necessarily building that rapport. Oh, yeah. I mean, imagine today's day and age. You want to do something with somebody you have a couple quick 
conversations over the internet just because you can and you can get a quick in the five to ten touch points we need and then all of a sudden one day you just find out where they're going to something and you just spend a thousand dollars ahead of time and fly across the country and Mm -hmm. have you know show up and have dinner at that event they'd be like what they completely look at you totally different like i thought you live in california i do i just wanted to come out and meet you Mm -hmm. like that thousand dollars was well spent just then Mm -hmm. right especially if you look at the problems that you have when you don't have that trust or the communication problems that are miscommunication and you have a product delay you know a launch delay you might miss the window you know you're missing millions of dollars as opposed to just a thousand on an airplane ticket Mm -hmm. so let me ask you this question i mean aren't we all just sort of nerds in our own way Mm -hmm. today i mean because well let me ask you so how do you define because obviously there's a lot of different definitions of it. When you talk about a nerd, what what, what do you exactly mean by that? Because I'm thinking, there we go. My man right there, he's like, I'm raising my hand. I'm like, I am totally a nerd. I mean, The pocket protector. The po- well, Remember right, those? but that's what we used to think. That's what uh-huh. we used to think, right? Revenge of the Nerds, the movie, mm-hmm. the whole nine, right? And they ended up, you know, winning at the end of the movie there, which is what's supposed to happen in a good movie. But, I mean, how do you define what that means? Just Just so I'm clear moving forward here. Oh, that's a good question. What is the contemporary definition of a nerd? A contemporary, exactly, right? Because right? it's changed. It's definitely evolved. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you can be a nerd when you're really interested in uh, something technical, um, but it's also people who are more task oriented and really focused in on that expertise. We got a thumbs up from my from my man there in the studio, right? Yeah, he's yeah, that's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. As opposed to the people who you know, like salespeople and the the folks who are actors and mm-hmm. artists. You know, they're not as nerdy because they're really into the people side versus somebody who would rather look at a book and learn something new about it Mm -hmm. or talk about the details of how this works or things like that. So what so what can we all learn? Because there's there's still a negative stigma, right? That you you look at the like you said, the pocket protector and the Mm -hmm. glasses with the tape in the middle and the whole nine. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, look, who are the richest people in the world right now? I mean, the the biggest nerds. I used to joke and say that there was a misprint in the Bible. It's actually the geeks shall inherit the The earth. The geeks shall inherit the earth, (laughs) right? Not the weak. Not the weak. So, so, I mean, as you look at today, and again, you've got this long storied history of being involved in sort of that nerd land, if you will, that nerd land that has really evolved into what runs, uh, I mean, it runs, it's the, it's the engine now of, of almost all of business. The nerds, you know, are, are, are truly running everything that ties us all together, right? So I, my point is, my question is, what can we learn from folks like the Bill Gates of the world and the, I mean, even, I mean, Bezos, before he decided to do steroids and bulk up and shave his head and the whole nine, I mean, you know, he was a, he was a nerd all day long, right? So like you look at some of those folks and those are poster children for what we would call a nerd. And yet you can see what they've been able to accomplish. So what can we learn from, from those folks who you would kind of throw in that, in that bucket? Well, certainly focus focus and drive and getting results. Those are typically the nerd behaviors, the people who are driven to getting a result as opposed to just the ideas people, Mm -hmm. right? You can have a lot of great ideas, but unless you're focused and you continue and you, you work through the night to debug your circuit so that it works, you're not going to get a product that can be used Mm -hmm. and sold. And you, that really is their passion, right? Mm -hmm. The nerds are passionate about, getting things to work or designing things that 
that actually do something or, you know, it could yeah. be medical devices. It could be something else or it could be finding the answer. You have people who are looking at astronomy who are nerds because they are just so driven to find that star that they mm-hmm. see out there, things like that. So the drive and the follow through will be some of the things that you can learn from the nerds. And we, we could actually, if we want to kind of flip this a little bit, we can say that the nerds really are the true rebels. I mean, they really are the true badasses. I, I mean, like, because most of the rest of society actually cares about what the rest of society thinks. You look at the typical quote-unquote nerd, and they don't really care. You know, they're just, as you said, they're, they're focused, they're driven. They don't really give two hoots. And they about, don't see the shiny, sparkly things that fly by them to, like to we do. To get distracted, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They're disciplined. But there is something to be said for that, right? I mean, are, are we t- really, when you come right down to it, they're probably even more mm, sort of in that badassery category than, than the rest of us, no? Yeah. I, you know, that's a great point because, you know, it's sort of a little bit of a secret about nerds, too, that... You know, there's a little disdain for the people who are all worried about each other and the, mm-hmm. the the perceptions and impression management. And that's thought of in a negative way. It's like, oh, people are just trying to put their phony selves out there, right, mm-hmm. to manage impressions. I'm just going to be who I am and do what I want to do. Yeah. And that it doesn't matter what other people think. I'm going to get it done anyway. And so that's certainly a lesson learned, but it's it's kind of a funny way that you, people are always thinking like, oh, we're looking down at the nerds, but the nerds are looking down at everyone else too. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Yeah. I know. They're <laughs> even, even higher up on, the, yes, on that ladder of looking down mm-hmm. at them. So where are you primarily, like one, did you sell your house in Silicon Valley? Your yes. condo? Yes. Well, I, uh, as you know, I, well, I live in uh, San Diego now. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Yes. I'm local. And... Um, okay, so what did I do? I went back to grad school in psychology, and that's what I am now as a psychologist. I went to Berkeley, and then it was during the middle of the dot-com era when things went crazy up in Silicon Valley and San Francisco where my husband and I found that we could buy a house three blocks from the ocean here for the price of a little miniature mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> condo up there. And we said, okay, we got it. We're moving. And um, so we've been a little bit more laid back here, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah for sure. So as we, as we look then to, to kind of tie things together with the work that you're doing now and how this can impact our listeners moving forward, from a leadership perspective, because you help organizations uh, you know, develop better lines of communication, if you will, between the generations and the different types of people and so on and so forth. And so... What, from a leadership perspective, what, what do what do people really need to keep in mind then, as they're as they're dealing with people who may not look like them, act like them, be like them, that sort of thing, right? Like what what can we what can we think about from an organizational standpoint as we potentially move forward with our own organizations and bringing in people of different talents and different uh, generations and so on? Just kind of step us through what that might look like. Okay, well, one of the things I try to help people understand is they need a leadership toolkit. I mean, it sounds kind of basic, but, you know, you imagine your own toolkit that you pull out a hammer if you want to put in a nail, you pull out a screwdriver if you want to put in a screw, things like that. When it comes to leading, you need to have different tools for different situations and different people. Mm -hmm. And especially you go into 
an environment where it's a very technical company. Um, you get people who have one tool. It's the data or the rational tool, mm -hmm. right? But then you see that a lot of decisions aren't made based on data alone. And I'll tell you, this came up with the first job I had out of college was when I was back at the company at Tandem and it had been acquired by um, Compact Computer. Mm -hmm. as, as you know, in a an acquisition or a merger, there's a lot of emotions that come up. For sure. A lot of fear. Yeah. And it was trying to help them manage those emotions and help people through uh, the, the unknown, you know, and the, you, that the data and the rational isn't going to help. Right, so we had to actually help them talk through some of those kind of things, and those are the the different tools that you have, depending on the people. You might have some other folks on your team who are really wanting to to talk about their home life, and some people who just want to get down to business. So it's having that flexibility to be able to work with the different people. Mm -hmm. So, so what else do they need? So, in this in this leadership toolkit, if you will, what are what are some of the other things then to keep in mind? Well, influencing and uh, being able to have empathy with others. Those are some of the emotional sides of it. And um, uh, the basic communication, being able to write. Uh, we see a lot of people who are coming out of school today who don't have those writing skills. Mm -hmm. And um, the follow-through, the results orientation. I mean, there's a whole uh, range of skills that leaders really need to have to be effective. And it's not just being good at their expertise. I mean, so mm -hmm. many people get promoted to leadership because they're really good at what they do. And it's like what, you know, the famous book will get you here, won't get you there, right? Yeah. So you need to be able to look out at what's going on around you, uh, be externally focused as well as uh, on your team. So to, yeah. so to that end then, where, where do you see things headed in terms of if, if we're going to do some future casting here, if you're like, I mean, you have almost a, a college-aged uh, mm -hmm. daughter, right? Mm -hmm. So what what are you thinking about in terms of providing direction for her? Like where where do you see things going? Because, you know, nerds, uh, well, I mean, whether we like it or not, right? It is, it is the fact that they are running things now and they will continue to run things in the future. So where do you direct your daughter at this point? And if you had, uh, you know, advice for those of us who have children as they're looking to go out into potentially college and in the workplace and so on. Uh, wh where do you see the future of all this going? Well, I married a nerd. We had a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a nerd too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yes, yeah, grateful for that in some ways. Um, but for me, it's really letting go and letting her figure out what's right for her. Mm -hmm. And that's my recommendation for parents all around is to let their kids understand where they fit in and where their passions are and encourage them and guide them uh, to do that rather than forcing them into a hole that they don't fit in. Mm -hmm. And there's a big issue right now where people think there's one path to success. We all have to go to this college and get this degree and go into this field. And the tech field is really big right now. And business is another one. But hey, you know, if that's not who you are, and you don't have your passion around it, mm -hmm. and you can you can work as hard as you can, but you're probably not going to go as far as you could, mm -hmm. right? If you find something you're really good at and have a passion at, you can find a way to make that work for you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to encourage people to do. And from So you're on the inside of a lot of these technology companies, mm -hmm. and 
you you see what takes place in terms of the the generational conflict and this that and the other but you are on the inside in terms of these companies and getting insider data and so on and so forth so where if you had a recommendation like if you had that crystal ball i mean where where do you see the workplace and whatnot evolving towards what what do you where do you see the biggest opportunities well certainly continuing with technology and it'll be in a different place and and we're moving into more biotechnology now than Mm -hmm. electronics so biotech meaning like implants into the brain that perhaps mm, a lot of companies down here in san diego (laughs) we don't all have implants yet but (laughs) well i mean it's like you remember the matrix right where like you wanted to learn kung fu Mm -hmm. or whatever it was and and literally just just download Mm -hmm. just download all that information you want to learn a language you just you know pop the pop the the chip in and you want to diagnose disease or something of that nature you just i don't know you run something in the dna and i mean that's that's got to be where the future is no yeah i think that's going to be the next big revolution Mm -hmm. tech revolution is going to be in biotech and you don't necessarily have to be a biologist to be a part of that you can Mm -hmm. find different uh, we need all sorts of people to help with that revolution too but if you're going to be designing some of these things or doing the experimenting having some Mm -hmm. science would be very useful and biotech, by definition, is just things that uh, we consume or are part of our bodies. I'm just, I just want to make sure I'm clear mm. in terms of your definition of what you mean by oh, biotech. Oh well, it, you know, it could be a, a lot of things. It could be, you know, biotech is changing the way we procreate. You know, mm-hmm. people have babies now in much different ways than they used to, good old-fashioned way, right? Because we have science to help out. Mm-hmm. Um, we have medical devices that allow people to live long and healthy and active lives that we didn't have before. Cloning is coming up right now, you know, for better, for worse. Mm-hmm. You know, what's of that going to lead to? Oh, actually, people. yeah. Really there is, there's, you know, we have uh, articles out there about getting in that direction there. Mm-hmm. So... You know, who knows when, when these... And then we have ethics of that, of course, too, right? Well, for cloning, sure. Yeah, yeah. But all sorts of things that will hopefully help humans uh, live longer and be healthier and mm-hmm. be able to do things bigger, faster, better. So At it, some point, yeah. it's just kind of like, do, maybe we need to rein these nerds in, though. Like, mm-hmm. they're taking it too far. Like, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, I don't know. Some of that's pretty... It's- scary really and you talk about connectivity and literally like being able to have every human connected in that sort of way um the internet of things if you will right where i mean you talk about devices being connected well the humans being connected and that's just for people who assume that we're not already connected Ooh, nice you have a theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Maybe look at how, few of us. how airplanes, you know, that's a scary thought, too. Back in the day, I mean, even today. Put them in a tube and make them fly. Yeah, yeah. and this big that metal big chunk vessel. of metal can fly yeah. up there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, we've had to adapt, and we'll have to continue adapting mm-hmm. as new technologies come about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously, a lot of opportunity, which is... Great, but at the same token, uh, we got to get back to, I, I think, um, well, that point of human connection, right? I mean, this, mm-hmm. and, and that's, I think, what is exciting most about the work, you know, that you do and whatnot is just really helping getting people more connected and 
not forgetting about who we are as, as humans and being relatable, right, to, to one another as well. Right. And that's, that's really where I help people because when we go so fast in this technology, we forget that we're all just people. And there's mm-hmm. a human on the other side of that screen. And when you bark at them and criticize them and flame them, you know, it's really a person on the other end of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How, how much of your work do you enter the modality of the person you're working with? So let, I'll give you an example. So you got about 90 seconds or so. You're working with this millennial. Do you email them or do you send them a message on Instagram? Like, What's do you that? do it different? <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. I flex and that's what I recommend to others too. To flex depending on who you're working with and what modality. With, with their skill. With their well, skills, yes, yeah. but there has to be a little back and forth if you're going to have a collaboration, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So everyone has to flex. Well, let me, let me ask you this then. So if people want more information about you and the work that you're doing, uh, what's the best way for somebody to connect with you? And, and what do you think would make the most sense for someone who needs? What's that particular need right now that you can help them with? Well, it's funny. We have the segue here. Being flexible, the company is Flexible Work Solutions, and mm-hmm. that's my website, flexibleworksolutions.com. Mm-hmm. And helping technical people build their people skills is really um, a lot of what I do. I and mean, you can see on the website I do other things too, but that's a great way. If you are somebody or you have a company where you have people who need those people skills, mm-hmm. that's that's a place to go for, yeah, yeah. for that. Well, I, uh, I I will tell you that from my perspective, uh, I can't imagine anything more important at this point than really being able to bring things back to sort of that, that human level, right, and not letting technology completely overtake everything and remembering, like you said, that there is someone on the other side of that, of that keyboard, someone on the other side of that screen, and at the end of the day... Yeah, you know, we, we are all in this together, right, to try to make it a better place for all of us. So, Joni Connell, really cool having you here. Thank you for stopping by and hanging out with us at Reinvention Radio. For Mary Goulet and Richie Ote and White Wade holding down the studio over there, I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you guys next time here on Reinvention Radio. Take care. You just got dismantled. Thanks for listening to Reinvention Radio. For more information about the show and your host, Steve Olsher, visit ReinventionRadio.com. You were born to do one amazing thing, but most people spend a lifetime trying to identify what it is. If you're in a job you don't like or are unemployed, if you're in a state of transition or just can't shake that nagging feeling that you were meant and made to do something extraordinary, then the Reinvention Workshop is exactly what you need. Led by award-winning self-help author Steve Olsher, the Reinvention Workshop will forever change your life. The Reinvention Workshop takes you step-by-step through Steve's proven formula that has helped so many people get on the right path and clear about what they were born to do. Take the first step to realizing the life you deserve and desire by visiting thereinventionworkshop.com today. No more delays. No more denial. Reconnect with your true self. Learn to live with purpose and conviction and become who you were born to be. The world is waiting for you. What are you waiting for? Log on to thereinventionworkshop.com today. That's the reinvention workshop.com.